everybody. You are listening to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast, where we will be tackling real financial issues so women can eliminate fear and take charge of their lives. I am your host, Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. So let's get to it. In marriages, if there's solid communication about money and people are being respectful of the other person's concerns and making them feel safe, then you're less likely to end up getting divorced because of financial issues. A hundred percent. And I hope everyone takes note of what Erica just said, because both people are stakeholders in a relationship. Whether one is working, one is staying home, whatever the situation is, you're both stakeholders in the financial relationship and transparency and honesty about your feelings about money and about debt and about everything else is so important because you're a partnership. And if you don't have that honest relationship, it will be deleterious in the long run to, you know, the longevity of that relationship. Welcome everybody to today's podcast. I am very excited about this podcast today because as you may know, if you've listened to my podcasts or read my book or follow me on social media, I uh, went through a very very strident and uncomfortable divorce uh, about 11 years ago. And it changed my life forever. And also is the reason I'm sitting here today talking to you on a podcast, because from that moment on, after I became a wealth manager, I decided that I wanted to make sure that women in particular uh, didn't make the same mistakes that I made. And um, as an ex-lawyer who was in the corporate finance arena, you would have thought I would have had a little more planning or pre-gaming or thoughtfulness to premarital, you know, planning or even divorce planning, and I did not. So, someone who got married in 1987 and was uh, made a lot of sacrifices for my ex-husband's career and was always busy being a mom or doing other things. I never really focused on some of the things that you know would ultimately be a temporary uh, downfall and disruption in my life because of a divorce. So with that said, I have one of the top divorce lawyers in this country with me today. Her name is Erica Lubins, and she is a partner at Wasser, Cooperman, and Mandels in Los Angeles. This is a very top law firm in the divorce arena, and Erica herself is a, is a top lawyer. So I am very excited to pick her brain today, find out more about her, and we are going to tell you all the things you need to know about planning before you get married, so maybe you won't get a divorce, and then what you need to do if you are really thinking that you should get a divorce. So Erica, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. And I believe you are live from Los Angeles. Is this correct? I am. I'm live from Los Angeles. Thank you so much for having me, Kimberly. Well, I want to get right into it because you graduated from law school. And first of all, I want to ask, why did you become a lawyer? I want, to, I want the audience to know a little bit about your trajectory and where you came from and why you decided to get into this career. But let's start with the basics. Why did you go to law school? Sure. So I decided to go to law school after working for a lawyer. He was, um, he was a bit of a character. He was very unusual. And he did bankruptcies and divorces. And these were the most like basic cases he advertised in the local newspaper, like bankruptcy, $500. And he, I worked for him as his assistant and he would, he wasn't the most responsible lawyer. I'll just say that. <laughs> well, he, he sort of two kind of interesting <laughs> combinations there, bankruptcy and divorce. I don't know. And right? divorce. 
So I, I was tasked with doing a lot of the, obviously the administrative work, but also meeting with people and collecting preliminary information. And I got to learn a lot about how these processes worked and just getting people from point A to point B. And I loved the resolution. I loved saying, okay, here's a problem. Let's solve it and get you to the other end. And that's why I decided to go to law school. Well, I was uh, a lawyer for many years, and that was my first career. And I will always be thankful that I had the opportunity to go to law school because I think it really is the best teaching in analytical thinking. And in any career that I've had since, because I did segue into the business world, I think my you know, my legal career and my law school education has always held me in good stead. So, okay, so you had this desire to be, you know, a problem solver that got to the end game and resolved issues for people. And you went right into family law as a young lawyer, which I guess because I was in the corporate world and I worked at a really big law firm in New York, everyone was either a litigator or a corporate lawyer or something like that. I didn't really know many people that went right into family law, which I think is probably more common now because I graduated from law school in 1983. That was like three centuries ago. But um, (laughs) why, why family law immediately? So I I enjoyed the experience of working for that first lawyer and learning a little bit about family law. To be fair, that was, you know, it was on a very different level from what my practice involves now. But people who are unhappy in their marriages, they really are at the the lowest point. You know, it's just the darkest of times. It's very hard for people to see a way out, particularly if there are issues involving their children, like if there's custodial issues, if there's financial issues, like if there's not very much money to go around. People are just trying to grapple with how to get out of the situation that's making them miserable, but also not completely blowing up their lives. So, while I, you know, I, when I was in law school, I also loved, I enjoyed taking corporations, like I was interested in corporate law. But the thing that I like so much about family law is that it's never boring. And it's never the same case twice. And you're just always dealing with a specific set of facts and circumstances. And, a, you know, each family is, is different and unique in their own way. So it's how do I help this family? How do I apply the information that I've learned? How do I apply the the law? And how do we get this family to where they need to be? Where we are unraveling them, where, you know, the, yeah. the family is, is splitting up. But how do you make the two individual people as whole as possible throughout that process? Yeah, and it is, I mean, honestly, I think a lot of, you know, comedians, people in general, you know, they give divorce lawyers a bad rap. But, you know, know, it's kind of like easy to be the butt of a joke or be critical. But honestly, what you are doing is such important work because I know for me, everybody, not always, but usually people are in a heightened emotional state and they are concerned for their children. They're concerned for their economic future. They are mourning the loss, even if it's a relationship they want to end of a relationship, a family you know, all the memories. It's just so hard to process all that while you're trying to unravel your economic situation and see how everyone goes forward. So really having a responsible and caring divorce lawyer is so important because it is the difference between kind of navigating this divorce without just totally having a breakdown and, you know, staying calm. And obviously when you're going through a divorce, if if you can have a therapist along the way, that might not hurt either. 
Absolutely. That's a very common piece of advice that I give because sometimes someone will look at their lawyer a bit like a therapist Mm -hmm. and that's not, that's not our training. That's not our background. It's really not appropriate. So there is some level of, of course, being empathetic and, you know, like a, a listening ear that is part of the job, but a therapist is so much more suited. So I would say in 99% of, of divorces, it's helpful to have a therapist there. And just like you said, it's, there are so few people who are able to make it through this process without being emotional and without, you know, having those heightened moments where someone is, they're acting in a way that they never would oh. if they weren't in the middle of the divorce. And I've, I've seen it with clients where they are very difficult, you know, to, to handle and, and manage and get them through the process. And then afterwards you speak with them and it's like speaking with a completely, completely different, different person. person. And and I mean, I was married for 23 years and I remember sometimes walking out of the courtroom because we had a very prolonged litigated divorce in in London. In the end, none of of us had money because we we blew it all on fighting with each other. But um, I remember thinking, looking at my ex-husband thinking, who is this person? You know, and like now we, 10 years later, our daughter just graduated from law school a couple weeks ago uh, at Tulane and... Um, we were, he, mm-hmm. he still lives in London, but you know, he was there with his wife and I was there with my husband and it's 11 years later. And, you know, we were talking about like articles in the New Yorker, like, you know, we've moved. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still not happy with his behavior during that divorce, but I've moved on. Sure. He's moved on, but I see, some, you know, elements of who we used to be, but man, when we were in that divorce, I used to look at him and think, okay. And sometimes I even look at myself and think, who am I? Like, I am so confrontational and bitter and angry. So even, you know, having a therapist helped, but it, you know, I I literally (laughs) needed to talk to that woman every day because I just was getting so upset by the whole thing. But so, well, first I want to ask you a question. When you, and I don't know if there's a, a, like an answer, but in the majority of divorces or what percentage in in your experience does money factor into the breakdown of the marriage? Because a lot of what we talk about in The Fiscal Feminist is how money has a way of, you know, infiltrating all aspects of our lives, especially our relationships. Mm-hmm. And what I found in my research is like a lot of relationships break down because of money issues. Sometimes it's not even about lack of money. It's about how money is spent. But th- there's just like a disagreement about money. In your experience, how does that factor into people getting divorced? So I think where absolutely money factors into a lot of divorces, I think that the main way that it becomes an issue, and this is if you have money or if you don't have money, it's how you communicate about money. So if you're not on the same page, if you're worth $100 million, but your spouse is spending at a level that you're not comfortable with, it's going to be a problem. So even though you can technically afford it, the other person is going to feel like they're not being heard. Their concerns are being ignored, even though, you know, it technically sure we can do this, but I don't want to do it. And right. you're still doing it anyway. On the other end of the scope, when I mean, we all know how much stress money can cause or, you know, any sort of financial struggles. So I think given the if people are having financial issues, the increased stress that that causes is going to create cracks in the relationship in other ways and have people not feel like they're being supported, not feeling like they're, you know, like a solid partnership because they just constantly have this stress that they can't resolve. So I think in marriages, 
if there's solid communication about money and people are being respectful of the other person's concerns and making them feel safe, then you're less likely to end up at a getting divorced because of financial issues. A hundred percent. And I hope everyone, you know, takes note of what Erica just said, because both people are stakeholders in a relationship, whether one is working, one is staying home, whatever the situation is, you're both stakeholders in the financial relationship and transparency and honesty about your feelings about money and about debt and about everything else is so important because you're a partnership. And if you don't have that honest relationship, it will be deleterious in the long run to, you know, the longevity of that relationship. So listen to all the other podcasts about money languages and money relationships and how to talk to your partner and not being afraid about it doesn't mean that you don't have a loving relationship. I continue to say that you actually have a better stronger relationship when you communicate about money. It doesn't mean that you're not still lovey-dovey and, you know, you're not still a really fantastic wife, mother, girlfriend, whatever you want to be, because you bring up money. So I want to get into divorce strategy and all that stuff. But first, I want to talk about what people can do, in particular women, because that is uh, someone that I like to, I think women don't get as many things addressed to them. So that's why I do focus on that. But I do think all of the advice that we give out is appropriate for both men and women. But what advice would you give to women about premarital planning and what they can do to either take some steps with their partner prior to getting married to obviate a divorce down the line or to streamline the divorce negotiation, settlement, litigation, et cetera. So what are the steps that you would recommend? Sure. So again, I mean, I think it really all goes back to communication. Communication is key. I think it's important. I think people frequently find these conversations not super sexy, especially when they're planning their wedding. Everybody wants to talk about the flowers and the cake and my dress and where we're going on the honeymoon. That's not what marriage is about. You know, that is like one nice party that you have, but then you have all of the stuff ahead of you, all of the things that are boring and repetitive and difficult and painful. But those are the things that are so essential to address. So I think it's really necessary to say, how are we going to handle our finances? Is everything going to be joint? Are we going to have, you know, separate credit cards where we don't see what the other person is spending? How do you feel about savings? How do you feel about contributing to retirement accounts? How do we feel like, is one person going to stay home if we have kids? How will that work? Like, how will, how will the other person be compensated if they're giving up their career? Or do we want both people to just continue to work and we have a nanny or we use daycare? Those are such important things, I think, to discuss at the head, because those are the things that I see when people are getting divorced, that there's a complete disparity between what person A and what person B recalls. They say, one person will say, well, we agreed I was going to stop working. That was always the plan. And the other person will say, no, I never wanted to be the sole breadwinner. You wanted to do that. Like you just unilaterally made the decision and cut me out. It's crazy to see how people can experience the same situation completely differently. And I think a lot of the times it's because these upfront conversations are not being had. And to tie in, you know, another thing is it it can really be helpful to have a prenup. And again, it's something that some people may not be comfortable with or feel like it's making marriage transactional. But what it actually does is it sets forth both people's expectations and it makes things very clear and it forces those conversations before you have the wedding. And also so that when you are getting divorced, when you 
pretty much are over it now, you're not going to be so inclined to be forthcoming or negotiate with your partner because at this point you probably aren't a fan of that person. So this allows for more fair treatment of what could happen down the road for both people than when they're at each other's throats and they don't even want to, you know, where they'll just have to spend a ton in legal fees to kind of unwind this thing because they're both so angry. Exactly. It provides a path, like the framework is already set up and both people have already become informed about how the law in their jurisdiction works in the event of a divorce. That's not something anybody knows, you know, just on their own. The law is definitely not intuitive. Family law in California is very complicated and I think very surprising to people when they're learning about what it provides right. for the first time when they're going through a divorce. Well, and and so let me ask you a question. So I've read that 30% of millennials now have prenups and a lot of the reason is because of student debt. Like they want to clarify who's responsible for the debt. So I know this is, this, there's a lot of complicated issues here. We are in California, which is a community property state. Other states, uh, I think there are what, 12 states that are community property, maybe 13, I don't know the exact number, but it's in that zone. And then the other states are equitable distribution states, I believe. So mm-hmm. you originally were practicing law in Massachusetts yes. and that's an equitable distribution state? Correct, yes. And so could you just do a little rundown on how, the divorce or how equitable distribution is different from community property. And then I wouldn't talk about how community property affects a prenup because, and I may be, I hope I'm right about this, but I believe that if, because people are like, well, you're in a community property state, it'll just be split down the middle. Well, not if you have a prenup because you have a prenup. That's the whole point of having a prenup. But can you first address the equitable distribution versus community property states? Because there are people listening to this podcast and all kinds of different places. And those are two different types of family law. Sure. So I'm going back in my memory a little bit, but my recollection of the statute in Massachusetts that governs equitable distribution is basically that any assets, however, and whenever acquired are subject to equitable distribution. So it's pretty much the polar opposite of what California community property and other community property states provide, because basically everything is on the table. So a a family law judge in Massachusetts or other equitable distribution states can look at all of the assets and say, okay, how do I want to divide this? What makes sense to me? And when I was practicing there, which to be fair is a long time ago now, but the general framework that we would anticipate on a, a, like in a divorce is that if you had a short-term marriage, both people were just going to keep whatever was in their own name. When it got longer, it was more likely that everything was going to be equally divided. And this can be things that in California would very clearly be somebody's separate, separate property. property. And it, yes. And in California, separate property is anything that you have going into the marriage. So as of the date of marriage, all of your assets are your separate property. And then during marriage, if you acquire anything through gift or inheritance, that's also separate property. And community property is pretty much anything else that's acquired during the marriage, including all of your earnings. Correct. Now, what if, so let me go back to, I have two questions here. So if you are in an equitable distribution state and you have a separate property trust, And so all of your holdings uh, are in your name, in the name of that trust. And then you have a prenup that says 
in the event of a divorce, everything is going to remain that is in your name in that separate property trust, yours, and will not be part of the corpus of the marital distribution. Would that override a judge including that in the... It should. It should. Okay. So that's... Okay. So guys, that's why I bang on about this stuff, about how a prenup is really important because we're not stagnant. And I also would like Erica to ask you, because a lot of people say, oh, only rich people need to have a prenup. My, you know, response is A, we are not stagnant people. So like in the case of my daughter, she's a lawyer. She's 32. She makes quite a bit of money as a lawyer in New York City, but she's not stagnant. She's going to continue to grow in her career as is her husband. And so you need to have formulas and ideas in place because you're not going to stay in this particular, even if you are 25, it doesn't matter. You're going to continue to evolve over time. So you can have things in place that foresee the distribution of property depending on the decisions of people in that marriage. So in a community property state, they, by, by definition, says if, you're, if you come into the marriage with this, all this in your name, it's going to be your separate property. I still recommend to my clients, my wealth management clients, to get a separate property trust and hold things just because it's like the suspenders, you know, uh, belt and suspenders. Mm-hmm. And then I always say have a prenup that, you know, uh, kind of delineates it. But the one thing I'm always a little bit confused about in California is debt, because I believe that even if one person incurs debt, because I've asked people, I've told people, I think everyone should try to keep some separate accounts, keep credit cards in their own name, maybe have one joint credit card, and then be very intentional about how they commingle money. So keep Mm -hmm. their separate money and then commingle intentionally. But I have read that in uh, community property states, if another, the other person incurs debt, you can't really prenup your way out of that. That the debt then just is considered to the benefit of the other person and they are responsible for the debt anyway. Is that true or I got that wrong? I I think that you can include that, you know, terms like that in prenups that your debt is going to be yours and the other person's debt will solely be theirs. I think what you might be thinking of is whether a like a third party would be bound by that, which they wouldn't, but you can have terms in the prenup where one person is going to, you know, we specifically acknowledge that third parties and a third party creditor would not be bound by the terms of somebody's prenup. But then we have a specific provision that like in the event, the third party creditor came after the other spouse, that the debtor spouse would, you know, indemnify them and hold them harmless. And if they didn't, there would be certain penalties such as being responsible for the other person's reasonable attorney's fees. So that's how you sort of deal with that. And I wanted to just add one thing to what we were saying previously about how I said, you know, in California, everything you have going into the marriage is separate property, which is what the law provides. However, I think it's absolutely essential, even if everything you have is is separate property, it's still really important to have a prenup, A, to disclose exactly what those separate property assets are. And because in California, there are ways for the community to obtain an interest in separate property during the marriage. Mm -hmm. So that's something we like to, like if someone has a separate property business and they continue to work there during the marriage, it's possible for the community to kind of get its way into that business. So it's so important in that sort of case, if you want to protect that separate property, to have the prenup, which basically, you know, contracts you out of what 
California law exactly, would provide. So exactly. Everything is very clear and there's no dispute about whether the community has obtained some sort of interest in these separate assets. Right. And I have had clients who are, are married to people who have their own businesses. They weren't particularly shareholders in those businesses, a spouse, but by the community property rules, they did have some interest in that family business that were in the business of their spouse that was a, you know, a sole proprietorship or partnership, whatever, because they were married to that person and benefited from that business. So there was an argument there. I know, like, well, I got married a couple years ago and obviously, you know, I have assets. I'm an older person. I've been married before, but I have a prenup that basically says everything that I do in my business in my wealth management firm as a partner or in the Fiscal Feminist LLC, whatever it is, is mine. There's not going to be shared ever. And whatever my husband does in his business is his. I don't get any rights to that. If he, you know, comes up with the next, he's an industrial designer. If he comes up with the next Ziploc bag, I don't get any of that. Mm -hmm. And so it keeps it nice and clean, you know. And it's also important as you get older and if you come into a marriage with other children, with children and so on and so forth, that in your, you know, inheritance, when you're thinking about your legacy, you know, you make sure that in your trust documents as well, that you make sure you understand who your beneficiaries are. And because that can get really complicated in a second marriage too. So there are lots of things to address, but a prenup is going to be the main thing that will save your bacon for a lot of these things down the road. So what are the most salient things that you would suggest that people think about to put into a prenup. And then also, if you could just explain the logistics, because my understanding is that both people should have an attorney for it to be enforceable. I know in California, you can't have the same attorney. There's also a window of time that you can't do it up until a certain point before the marriage, or you have to do it. There's a window before the marriage, you have to get it done in. Whereas in New York, there doesn't seem to be that, but in California, yes. Sure. So this is what people refer to as the seven-day rule. It used to be that there was a, a, like a waiting period before the wedding date. But what the rule provides, what the statute provides, is that there has to basically be like a cooling off period. So it's seven days from when the final draft is presented. You have to wait seven days to sign it. So it's not tied to the actual date of marriage. I mean, I always encourage people to get it done sooner rather than later so that you can focus on the happy days. Yeah. Nobody wants the flowers. to get their Right. <laughs> yes. Two days before the wedding, that's just miserable. So it's it's better to do it as soon as possible and just like put it in your drawer, lock it away and hope you never have to look at it again. But yeah, it's just seven days between when you final, like the agreements in final form and it actually gets signed just to make sure that there's no duress. Everybody has plenty of time to think about it, consider it and say, yes, I'm comfortable signing. Yeah, you guys don't want to be signing your prenup at your rehearsal dinner. Just saying. <laughs> no, you don't. And I, I've had that where it's being signed the day of and I just always feel so bad for the people. I mean, sometimes you can't avoid it. Sometimes people wait until the last minute. But if you have any way to avoid that, it is better. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess you could, if you frame it in the best way possible, as you guys came to a meeting of the minds, maybe you could toast some champagne at your rehearsal dinner to it. Um, okay, so that was something I wanted everyone to be aware of. And then also just... Off the, you know, just a few points. What are things that you would absolutely suggest that people put in a prenup just to make sure, like, so for example, if somebody's going to step out of the workplace, how would you address that? And then after you talk about that, I'm going to ask you about do-it-yourself prenups. Okay. 
So some of the standard things that we put into prenups are basically how, you know, how the assets that you have coming into the marriage are going to be treated. Most likely that it's just going to stay separate and the community or the other person is not going to obtain an interest in those separate property assets, regardless of what occurs during marriage. Usually we have to address how living expenses are going to be paid. You know, that's a big one, especially if someone earns a lot more than their spouse or there is this contemplation that one person will be working and the other will be staying home. Um, sometimes we'll have, you know, some person paying for the living expenses with their separate property if they have substantial separate property so as to preserve community. You also have to deal with how earnings are going to be treated during marriage. Sometimes we have people who say, I don't want any community property at all. Like we're just, everything I earn will be my separate property. Mm -hmm. Everything you earn will be your separate property. And everything is just going to be super clean and clear unless we specifically agree in a separate signed writing otherwise. So so let me ask you a quick question about that. So say every two people say, I want everything to be separate. But then during the course of the marriage, they keep most things separate, but they intentionally open a joint bank account. Mm-hmm. And that's not in the prenup and it hasn't been designated that they were going to do that. But then that would become marital property, correct? But that wouldn't in any way impinge on the separate property. It's only if they choose to take some separate property out and put it in that joint account. Right. So we usually solve for that in prenups by stating basically like this is how everything is supposed to go down. Mm -hmm. But in the event somebody does something different, here's how that will be treated. So in an instance like that, it would say, you know, nothing is going to be joint. But in the event the parties do do something joint like a bank account or let's say they set up an LLC, we are going to either just assume it's 50-50, it'll be treated as 50-50, or it'll be treated, it'll be the person's ownership interest will be consistent with their contributions. So like if it is an LLC, you know, one person puts down $100,000 and the other person puts down $200,000, that's how the ownership interest would be, would be considered. Okay. Okay. And that, and that seems fair to me. And so what about if one party steps out of the workforce, has a career, is making money, One of the problems for me was that I was a lawyer, but then I stepped out because my ex-husband was asked to move to England. It was supposed to be for two years. I agreed to do that. And then he still lives there 30 years later. And it it actually has been 30 years. I was there for 14 years. It had a really deleterious effect on my career development because I couldn't really do what I did there. And then when I came back, I had this divorce I had to keep going back and forth to London for. So long story short, all that invisible labor I did, you know, the caring of the children, the taking care of the home, the career sacrifice, I literally didn't get anything for that. I mean, I did until he defaulted on the alimony decree, but it that only lasted for eight months and then he defaulted and, and it I could legal expense and going back to court, I just never could win that against him because he claimed he had some mental thing that was not true. But Mm -hmm. I know, like I mentioned in my daughter's prenup, there is a formula for whoever decides to stay home with a percentage of what they're making, 401k contributions, social security contributions, and kind of tallying that all up over time. And, you know, whatever time out of the workplace it is, it's a formula. How do you recommend addressing something like that if one of the two people has to step out for a while? I think, you know, your daughter's in New York. California is, I think, probably the most generous state 
when it comes to how property is is determined, you know, building the community is sort of the focus of the California courts. And we also have, I think, the most generous spousal support provisions in the entire country. So I think for people who decide to stay home in California, they're sort of already taken care of because everything earned by the other person during marriage is 50% theirs. Like if it's from their services rendered during marriage from employment, that's 50%, you know, already belongs. It's 50-50. We're splitting it equally. And then spousal support, there's obviously going to be a greater need for spousal support if someone has taken time off to care for the kids. And in our statute, which sets forth the various factors on how spousal support is determined, that's one of the factors. Like, were you, you know, did you have child care duties or are you out of the workforce because of child care duties and also just what are your needs so we see a lot of and one of the things that we actually try to deal with in prenups is limiting spousal support obligations Mm -hmm. because they are so very generous in california that i've seen spousal support orders that are hundreds of thousands of dollars a month just depending yeah. on the party's lifestyle. Oh, I wish I had gotten divorced in California. <laughs> so everyone gives California a bad rap because of taxes. For anyone out there who's thinking about getting divorced and might want spousal support, I would say let's move to California. <laughs> and I've actually dealt with several cases where someone tries to claim that they live in California and we've had jurisdictional disputes because they are trying to take advantage of either the spousal support laws or child support laws. So let me ask you a question. My understanding is that alimony can only be addressed in a prenup, not a postnup. And so can you confirm or tell me that's wrong? And also, do you have a preference when you're representing a client about whether or not they get alimony or they just get a settlement up front? Because my problem with my alimony was it it, it was you know, defaulted on and then trying to get it back to where it was, A, was very expensive and B, didn't work out in the end for me. And again, I did this in London, so that's a completely different legal system. But the point is, can you address alimony and post-snup? And and I guess this is a perspective from California law. And would if someone's going to go into this, would you prefer they get a settlement and all their money up front or is spousal support through alimony? Preferable. So it's not completely clear in California if you can, you absolutely can limit it in a, in a prenup. Some people waive it in prenups. That's not something that I usually do unless it's a very particular situation. Like let's say both people have tons of money, mm-hmm. then I would consider having a, a full waiver of spousal support in a prenup. Or if the people are, you know, older and have been married before, then it, it could be appropriate. But in general, I'm much more comfortable with just a limitation on spousal support in a prenup. For postnups, and it's, the, you know, it's been upheld that spousal support limitations are fine in, in prenups. Um, it's a little bit murkier when it comes to postnups. I wouldn't say that you can't do it. And I wouldn't say that it's absolutely not enforceable, like that the law is not so clear on that. I think you can try to do it. You just can't be 100% sure that it would be enforceable. Okay. And and then your view on alimony versus just a front full settlement, see sure. you later, I got my money, you got yours, peace out. Sure. So a, what we call spousal support buyout is something that people can agree to. It's not something that a court can order. So it's something that has to really be done in mediation or just be, like by a settlement between the parties. 
for some people, it makes sense. Like if there's enough cash available, Mm -hmm. the support payor usually loves it because they're not writing a check and you get some discount. We usually discount the spousal support buyout number for present value Mm -hmm. because the other person is having the benefit of having the lump sum. They can invest it now. So there's usually a little bit of a haircut that's a benefit to the other person. And then obviously not having to pay over time. And it's great for the support recipient because they get it all up front and can just make their choices, you know, based on that lump sum payment. So yes, if it's appropriate for both people and it makes sense, it's definitely something that I recommend. You know, the main downside of it for the support payor would be if they think there's a strong likelihood of the other person getting married pretty soon. Because in California, if the other person remarries, it spells the support immediately terminates. Correct. Yeah. So you wouldn't want to make this huge payment for, let's say, like 15 years of spousal support and the following year that person gets married. That wouldn't be a very good deal. But if they got the spousal support and for some reason, like three years later, they met somebody and got married, they, they would still have that and there would be no recourse to get it back, correct? If they did a buyout? Yeah. Yeah. No, if you do the buyout, that's the other person. That's their money. They're free to proceed however they want to. So let me ask you a question that's near and dear to my heart because uh, so what I had my first decree. Now, again, I I was in London because that's where he was domiciled and is domiciled. And I got the decree and it was for child support and for my uh, spousal support. And part of it was a settlement. Part of it was alimony and child support. And then like eight months later, six months later, I guess it was April, somewhere, it was October, then he stopped working. And then there was this thing, he said, you know, I just can't pay this anymore. And so I, so obviously I had to go against him to try to compel him to do this. But, you know, he had some money that he gave me, but then that was all the money he claimed he had. And so all this required more, and unfortunately in England, you have to have a solicitor and a barrister because a barrister mm-hmm. is the only person that can speak in court. So then you have all these additional legal fees. So I just was running out of money. I, you know, I couldn't pay for my kids' college tuition and all this other stuff and pay legal fees. So eventually we did have another court case like two years later, but at that point I was working at Morgan Stanley and he had resolutely never kind of gone back to work and all of that stuff went against me. But what is the recourse for people when people don't honor the decree for alimony here in California or in the United States? So in California, you would still have to go back to court, unfortunately, if the other person is, it's, it's, what, it's basically a contempt action. They're in contempt of the, the agreement or the order, whatever it is. You'd have to go back to court to try to compel their compliance and if it's a situation where somebody is claiming that they they cannot work, then you can do something called a vocational evaluation because the court, at least in California, has the ability to look at someone and say, okay, I understand that you are not working, but you could be. So I'm going to treat you like I can't make you work. No one can. The court's jurisdiction doesn't go that far. But what the court can do is say, I'm going to pretend that you're earning income at this level for support purposes. And that's going to be the order. Okay. Well, that's something. You know, it's so murky. And this is the thing. the The more that you can settle in a prenup and the more you can get upfront, you know, in a way, the safer you are. This is my advice to women, but it doesn't always work out that way. There's a couple of issues I want to talk about now. Before I ask you how to pre-game the divorce and all the steps you need to take before you do that, 
Can you just give us a little primer on the different types of divorce that are out there? Because some people were like, oh, you know, we get along just fine. We just, we had a mediated divorce. Okay. So if you could explain mediated, collaborative, litigated, and then also, I believe in any kind of divorce, somebody should, everybody should have a lawyer just because Mm -hmm. I don't think people are going to be particularly open and forthcoming when they're in a divorce situation, even if they're doing a mediated divorce. And I think people don't understand things. So can you address the different types of, uh, of divorce and then the role of the, the lawyer and should there be a lawyer always involved? Sure. So I do think that there should be a lawyer involved, I think, for, you know, if, if people can afford it. And there are resources for people who can't afford it, yes. whether it be, you know, the self-help services at the courthouse. There are attorneys who volunteer regularly to help people, you know, go over, like help them fill out the paper. Pro bono, right. Exactly. Review. And then there are, you know, basically like charitable or nonprofit entities out there that provide assistance, especially for, you know, for women who, you know, have been victims of domestic violence or have other issues like dealing with, let's say, immigration status. There are resources out there to help these people navigate what, you know, can be very complicated and which, you know, something they obviously have no familiarity with. So there are resources out there, but if you can afford to have a lawyer, you absolutely should have a lawyer. Like I said earlier, family law, not intuitive, can be very complicated and you need to be educated so that you know whether the deal that you're evaluating is a good deal for you or whether you could, you know, whether it's terrible. So you need to have that, that background knowledge in order to make good choices. And then in terms of the different kinds of divorces, there so there's different ways that mediation can work. There are attorney mediators and then there are judges, retired judges, at least in California, that serve as, as mediators. So if you are working for people who are pretty amicable, frequently they will work with a mediator and this is a lawyer who just serves as, as a neutral and they will meet with this person you know, over the course of however many weeks or months to put together the mandatory financial disclosures, to learn about the law, to discuss different concepts, and then, you know, hopefully come up with an agreement, a negotiated agreement. So when people are doing this mediation, you'll have the mediator. And then I always think some, each person should have a lawyer because they're still producing documentation and they're still producing an idea of how this is all going to be split up. So I know there's a lot of people out there that kind of operate in this mediation world, some of whom are lawyers, some of whom are not, as mediators too. I know there are other kinds of people who act as mediators, Mm -hmm. but, you know, this is for the rest of your life. So just give us a little idea. So each person has their representation and then they're submitting information to the mediator who then looks at it all and helps them together figure this out? Right. So there are some people who opt to not have what we call consulting attorneys and they just deal with the mediator. That's mm-hmm. not, I mean, it's obviously everybody's free to make their own choices and decide what works for them. I definitely encourage people to have consulting attorneys and that's something I'm a consulting attorney in a variety of different cases right now. Because when you have a mediator, that person, had they're neutral. 
So they are not going to tell you what's good for you. Correct. can't because they owe an equal duty to both people. So the benefit of having your own attorney who's serving in the consulting capacity is that they will say, well, you know, you could get a little bit better here or how about we do this? This would be beneficial to you in this way. So you have somebody who's advocating for your own interests, but still in the nice, amicable, you know, friendly environment. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what's the difference between mediation and a collaborative divorce? So a collaborative divorce is not something that I see a whole lot of. My experience with that has been limited. There's a couple of offices around Southern California where basically both spouses will go to this mediation office and they offer a lot of in-house services. So they have a forensic accountant. They have a co-parenting counselor. They have the lawyers that you can talk to. And the idea is that everybody just works together. In my very limited experience, it has not been successful, but that doesn't mean So they that have one lawyer or they have two lawyers? More lawyers, but the lawyer is not, I mean, the, the idea, it's called collaborative. The idea is that everybody's working together. But I think in most cases, people who are going through a divorce, they still are, you know, sort of looking after their own interests. And As they should be. Right. So in the case that where I was involved, where a collaborative firm was initially involved, we ended up going a more traditional route instead, where both people just had their own lawyers. And I worked with the other lawyer to negotiate the deal. And that was more successful. Yeah. And isn't I thought the rule with collaborative uh, divorce is that you have to come to an agreement or, and I always think, well, what does that mean? What if you can't? Like what happens yeah. if you can't? So you sign these agreements at the outset, basically stating that same thing that you have to, like you're both committed to this process and you have to, you know, you'll reach an agreement, but nobody, you can then opt out of it. It's just like during yeah, this, I mean, right, as long as we are involved in this, like no one will be filing something with the court. No one will okay, be. Okay, okay, okay. So good intentions. Right. Good intentions, like setting forth what the plan is, but ultimately either person can say, okay, this isn't working for me. I'm now opting out. Like basically this process is terminated. And then the last thing before we get into the pregame divorce strategy, Mm because I'm running out of time, um, Mm -hmm. is that litigated divorce, everyone thinks litigated divorce means you're, you know, at each other's throats and you're, you know, it's like the war of the roses. And it can be, I mean, mine was very much like that. I didn't drive my, you know, Toyota SUV into the front lawn or anything, but you know, could have if I, on any given day, the way I felt. But um, what is exactly, you know, why do people have a litigated divorce? Is it more confrontational? Is it actually the most efficient way and maybe the fairest way of getting a settlement or you know, the spousal support? What are your thoughts on that? Sure. So definitely not the most efficient. You know, the court systems, at least, at least in California, are very, very backed up. Anytime you are litigating something, it's it's going to be a lot of time and a yeah. lot of money, and you may not be very happy with the outcome. So at least in my practice, if there's any way to avoid litigation, that's what I recommend to my clients. Also, because of the acrimony, I, I think for a lot of people, when they're involved in litigation, they're never going to come back from that. Like their relationship yes. is always yeah. going to be fractured. It's just such a tense, difficult process. However, you know, there are some issues that have to be litigated where you just really can't reach a compromise. One example is if one person wants to, we call it a move away action. So if one person wants to move with the kids out of California, let's say they got a great job in Virginia and they want to move across the country. There's no 
real way to compromise that. It's either we're moving to Virginia or we're all staying in California. So those are the kind of cases that end up getting tried. Or if there's something, a a dispute about, let's say, a business, like we were discussing earlier, a separate property business, the spouse continues to work there during marriage, it increases exponentially during, um, exponentially in value during the marriage. What is the reason for that increase in value? And is it going to be mostly separate property or mostly community property? If you're talking about a lot of dollars at stake and the parties can't reach an agreement, that's the kind of issue that's going to be tried. And how would the court determine that by looking, how do they come up with that resolution? What are they looking at? Well, there's a, they, they're looking at the case law and they're looking at the, you know, the facts of the case and the testimony of the parties and the testimony of experts. So there's a lot that goes into these things. And that's, you know, that's why litigated cases are extremely expensive. So if you're, it's different, you know, sometimes people have to have a hearing on temporary support. That's right. Right. I had one of those and that was a no brainer. That's not going to break the bank. However, it's, those are also cases that I usually try to settle just because if someone's entitled to support, it makes sense to reach a, a temporary agreement rather than having everybody take the time and incur the costs to go down to court. But to me, I like I like to be the master of my own destiny. I think that, you know, most clients I have, they like that too. But there are some people who really need to be told what it's going to be by the judge. They're just not comfortable making their own decisions. Right. They feel comfortable that there's an authoritative figure who looked at right. all this stuff and that's it. Right. Come what may. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I, I always think like when I hear the word forensic accountant, I just think, oh, oh this is going to be expensive. Because now you need a forensic accountant, which means they've got to like do some detective work and that's going to take time and uh, blah, blah, blah. But uh, yeah. Okay. So because we're, I want to be respectful of your time. Tell us what are the most important things to do before you, you know, pack your bags and leave the house. If you're thinking of going to, you want to have a divorce, you're thinking of making that move. What Mm -hmm. should you do before you do anything? You should talk to a lawyer. So you should talk to a lawyer in whatever the jurisdiction is that you live in, have somebody lined up and ready to go and just get the, you know, the rundown of of the law where you live and how it's going to work. And if there's anything that you particularly need to be doing. And would you recommend as a lawyer or as, you know, someone who's an expert in this area, because I always say to people, before you walk out the door, try, because I have many clients um, and, and many women clients who don't know how much their husbands make. They don't know whether they have 401ks. They don't know what in- accounts they have. They haven't really reviewed the tax return. Like they sign it, but they don't look at it. Mm-hmm. So my advice is, I'm not asking people to be shady or anything, but like get hold of all the documentation you can about the accounts that at least have your name on it and the tax returns that you've signed. I don't, you know, when in what by whatever ways and means you need to do that, but get as much information as you possibly can before you, you know, start making formal proceedings against somebody, because trying to get that information once formal proceedings start can be difficult. People aren't as forthcoming with providing information, even if it's in a discovery process. Sometimes you might have to subpoena stuff and because mm-hmm. they're just not cooperating. So just getting that information that's vital to your long-term financial situation is so important. And I don't know how you do it, but I would say, I know for me, I did some of it, but I didn't do enough of it. And I wasn't aware of everything. And I don't know, I was just so 
stressed out that I just kind of lost the plot a little bit there. So what are the most common mistakes that people make in a divorce? Like, what are the things that we should just definitely not do? Um, Putting things in writing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, sending the nasty text message. The text messages. Nasty email. Yes. So those are things that people will, you know, fire something off in the heat of the moment. And the next thing you know, there's a request for an emergency domestic violence restraining order. Oh, yeah. And, and then the other person, but I didn't, I didn't mean that, or I was being hyperbolic and it doesn't matter. You know, they, at least in California, it is the bar for getting an emergency order, which to be fair is, you know, it, it's for a shorter period of time, but the bar to get that initial order granted is not that high. So if somebody can show a threatening text message, that alone can be enough. So it's really, you know, taking a beat before you send anything in writing, thinking what I tell my clients is, you know, when you're in the divorce process, anything that you put in writing, you should think about it being attached to a pleading and read by a judge. Right. So step away from your phone. Don't drink and text. Exactly. And especially don't do that when you're getting divorced because you're already an emotional in an emotional turmoil. So all of those things, because um, I will not lie, I think I was actually guilty of doing some of that stuff. So everybody is, it's really hard not to, you know, but at least when, when the lawyers come in, that's when we try to put the hammer down and say, okay, I know you did this. It was a mistake. It's fine. No more, no more text. Yeah. No cut more. It out. Yes. Cut it out. So that I think is really important. Like you said, gathering the documents. I mean, at least in in California, there are these mandatory disclosure requirements. I recall them existing in Massachusetts too. So both spouses have the burden of making a full, fair, accurate disclosure of all of their assets, their debts, their income, and their expenses, and exchanging those before anything in the divorce can really take place. And then you have the additional discovery rights where you can request things directly from the other person or directly from institutions. So all of that does exist in the event that you don't, you're not able to get your hands on it yourself. You can still get it at the end of the day. And then I think probably just not not listening to your attorney. I think that's when I've really seen people make the most mistakes and wind up in a place where they're very unhappy. Some people just, you know, they'll say, well, I don't like the law. Like we should change it. (laughs) And I've had to explain to people how it doesn't really work that way. Like these are this, the law, love it or hate it. It is what it is. It applies to everybody and you have to just work within that framework. So just having frustration and saying, well, that's not fair. It's just sort of a waste of time. Yeah. The, uh, divorce is not fair. I mean, I tell people that all the time. It wasn't fair for me. In my mind, uh, you know, it depends on your perspective and who you are in the, in the you know, in the situation. Both people don't think it's fair. Mm-hmm. And I would also add to that, if, you know, first of all, lawyer selection is super important. So make sure that you do your research. You find a really good lawyer who has good recommendations, good referrals, who you have a, a ability to communicate with, you know, when you meet somebody, whether you trust them or not, you know, like do your homework. And also don't listen to everybody else. Every single human in your life, your family, your friends, your neighbor, they're all going to chime in and weigh in on this divorce that you're having if you start sharing all this information, which is fine. We all need to talk. But, you know, they aren't, they aren't the experts. They don't know what's going on. And I think we can get clouded judgment by like listening to all the noise of everybody else who's chiming in about the divorce. So usually the divorce lawyer is going to know 
the best way forward in this very, you know, complicated kind of dissolution of a life. I wanted to ask you about online divorce. I know that um, your partner, Laura Wasser, I believe she has a divorce.com, which is an online divorce service. You know, not everybody can afford fancy divorce lawyers or any divorce lawyers. I mean, really. Um, now we all, we have said, and I continue to believe, just like Erica said, it is really important to have a lawyer. And there are a lot of pro bono, not, you know, where you can get lawyers that you don't have to pay for that are very competent lawyers. I know um, my daughter, who's a lawyer in New York City, she spent eight months doing pro bono work as a family lawyer from a top law firm in New York. So, you know, you can find some resources out there, but be that as it may, tell us a little bit about online divorce and the pros, the cons, and who should be thinking about that? Who is this a good option for? Sure. So this is a good option for people who have a, you know, like an amicable relationship with their spouse where they're coming to an agreement on how they're going to do everything. And for people who, where it's going to be pretty simple, like pretty straightforward. Yeah. Let's say it's a short-term marriage. Yeah. You get married and you, like two months later, you're like, oh sure. God, I hate this you person. You rent an apartment. Yeah. There's a couple accounts that have to be divided. What you really just need assistance with is filling out paperwork and putting together the actual final agreement that's going to be submitted to the, to the court so that you can be formally divorced. That's who that's good for. Okay. And so that is, I was checking it out today, divorce.com. And it also has a section on prenups. So for people who are looking for that online, do it yourself. There is a consultative aspect to it as well, if you want mm-hmm. it. So I think, you know, there are some resources out there for things like that. Better to do that than nothing at all. Mm-hmm. So I would recommend looking into that as well. And then my final question to you, on, on another note, because you guys do some very high profile divorces in your law firm. And I just want to know, like, how are these celebrity or big businessmen and women, how are these high profile divorces different and substantively different than, you know, the common man? Like, you know, what other things are you concerned about when you're kind of representing people that are in the public eye? And, you know, the things that you do are also under scrutiny. How does that affect this whole thing. Sure. So I would say one of the ways that it's different is um, confidentiality. We're much more concerned with having confidentiality stipulations, you know, before any documents are exchanged, making sure that only certain people get to see those documents. So keeping things as tight and underwrapped as, as possible. In California, you know, divorce, everything is public record. So anything you file with the court is going to be publicly available. So we try to like keep that in mind when we're filing things to maybe leave out something that would be more sensational or would compromise somebody's privacy. That's not something we want to wind up on TMZ. Um, Right. (laughs) But I I guess they spend a lot of time reading divorce papers. I I think they have people who just hang out at the courthouse because sometimes we file something and then within moments, you know, there's a story online about it. So it happens pretty quickly. Um, but also, I would say the main difference with dealing with really high-level divorces is that you're you're frequently not even talking to your client that much. You're talking to their entertainment attorney. You're talking to their manager. You're talking to their business managers because they frequently don't have a great awareness. Like I've had people who have told me, you know, I'm a singer songwriter. I don't, I trust my people for that. Like they do that for me. I'm involved in my creative process. I don't know how all this stuff works and I'm not interested in learning now. So you guys just go and figure it out. 
Wow, that's trust. Yeah. Uh, I, I I wish I could have that life where I'm just yeah, so enraptured yeah. in my career. I can have my people handle my next divorce if I have right. one, which I hope I don't. I don't think I'm going to, but you never know. Um, wow, that's well, that's really interesting. I mean, what a I mean, look, I think what you're doing and because there's a whole big scope of law work, you know, but I do think helping people get through this very difficult time is really, really meaningful and important work because it's, you know, when you, when you come out the other end of this, you are changed as a human, your financial situation is changed. That's just one aspect, but you as a human being are changed um, for, and oftentimes for the better. I mean, I hated going through my divorce. It was one of the worst, worst, worst times of my life. But in the end, I came out like a phoenix from the flames. I changed my life. I, you know, started in my wealth management career that has been very, very good to me. And in the end, I started this platform to help other women that I I hope, you know, they are getting a benefit from. So it had a lot of positives. You just have to get through that, you know, really uncomfortable few years maybe or however long it takes. But having a good lawyer to help you through that is it's worth, it's gold. It's absolute gold. So Erica, I can't thank you enough for all the time you spent today and sharing your knowledge and wisdom and giving our audience some guideposts for navigating these very tricky waters indeed. Final word of advice to anybody out there about anything, prenups, divorce, life, what are the final thoughts? The, well, first, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And the other thing, you know, the one thing that was just popping into my mind is, I think you said any advice, especially for women, I would say have something for yourself, you know, whether that's a career or some charity or whatever it is, have something that is just for you during marriage. Don't just devote yourself to your your husband and your kids. And I know that's that's how women are. We, you know, we're always putting ourselves last and being preoccupied with everybody else's needs. And I've seen a lot of women how when the marriage breaks down, they yeah. are completely bereft and they because they didn't keep anything for themselves. And they are, like you said, starting from scratch. And it's amazing that you did that and that you're able to succeed in the way that you have. But I think for a lot of women, it's so yeah. hard for them so to hard. envision that. And I think if you have something that's just yours during marriage, you're at less of a chance. Even if the marriage breaks down, you know you're going to be okay because you've maintained your own identity. Hopefully you've maintained your career skills. You're going to be able to, to move on and rebuild faster. So I think we as women should ignore that you know natural inclination to put ourselves last and say, no, I'm going to like, I need something for myself too. And I have to make sure that I'm okay so that I can, you know, I can help the family be okay regardless be okay. of what happens. I say amen to that, sister. That is the best advice. We're going to end on that because I couldn't say it any better. And it's okay to be selfish. And that's not in a bad way. I mean, you know, we've had this narrative throughout time that we as women are nurturers and we have to put everybody first. And, you know, Jane Austen time, it's done. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's keep something for yourself. Have your own purpose. Try to have your own money, even if you're married. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the prudent way to do it. Don't listen to people that say you have to commingle everything. That's bad advice. I'm just saying that right now. So <laughs> again, Erica, you have been a fantastic, fantastic source of information. This is um, a really, really important topic because honestly, all of this stuff affects your long-term financial health, how you're going to live in your retirement, 
how things are going to look for you throughout your life. So I can't accentuate enough that you should listen to this podcast multiple times and take notes and follow Erica's advice. (laughs) Thank you so much, Erica. And until next time, guys, I hope you like this. Please rate the podcast and subscribe to it. And I look forward to our next podcast. Thank you for listening today to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And I would really appreciate if you could also rate and review it. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at The Fiscal Feminist or check out the website FiscalFeminist.com. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.